0: We looked at the first nine verses initially, and we've made some application of that. And so in these first nine verses, Paul has established what would be the four repeating themes that we will see all throughout this book of the Bible. Paul has has established, reestablished his authority as an apostle, remembering that he had visited the church in Corinth, Years before was instrumental in many of them coming to faith in Christ, of establishing a church that would worship him and serve him. He was known as an evangelist, a preacher, a church planner, a discipler. And so he reminds them that he is an apostle by the will of God and he is speaking to them to the church, the inspired words that God would have him say. He also reminds them that they are the church of God, not an individual community of believers, but the family of God, the people who make up a part of God's universal church, this church that has been sanctified through their union with Christ. Although you and I don't experience the holiness that is ours in Christ, God, nonetheless, has declared us to be holy in His sight. So He reminds them of who He is. He reminds them of who they are. And He reminds them that they have been filled with the gifts of the Spirit, evidence of God's grace in their lives that has enabled them to know God as their Father, to experience this transforming work of salvation through the cross of Christ, He... Earmarks for them these special gifts and their culture, the gift of speech and knowledge, which we'll continue to look at today, and these prized gifts, which became the source of the greatest divisions that their church was experiencing. Paul also encourages them that they are to be faithful to the Lord to use these gifts as they wait for Him in His imminent return to usher in God's eternal kingdom Here on this earth. So having established these themes in the first nine verses, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sets out to address the issues that are plaguing this church. Read with me in 1 Corinthians, verses 10 through 17. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So we're going to look at three major points in the beginning of Paul's address to the church at Corinth in dealing with the issues that were plaguing them. The first one is this. It is the call to unity. Now, we will identify it as the call to unity, but this actual call to unity begins here, and it runs way into chapter 3, and some would say even into chapter 4. So we're not going to deal with this in a centralized call for unity, but we'll break this out week by week, at the individual pieces that Paul puts together that make up this call for unity. So verse 10 says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So this opening verse expresses the goal of Paul's entire address to the church, and that is unity. Paul uses this word here, the word exhort, which carries with it the idea or the term to implore. And while the verb falls short of a direct command, it carries with it incredibly significant weight. It's an insistence that this problem be resolved, and it really does not sound like it is an optional Issue for them to deal with. I exhort you. I implore you. He's trying to capture their attention. The verb contains, excuse me, the verb includes both the desire to help, to come alongside, as well as convincing them to see the seriousness of the issue. I've used this example before. If you had a little child, a grandchild perhaps, who was playing in the front yard and they began to bolt across the street, you would implore them to stop because of the danger that they faced if they continued on their way. That is in a sense the idea that we are to carry into this call to unity is that Paul is urging them as brethren the brethren here would identify that he's speaking to God's family. Now, if you remember, Paul has already reminded them of his authority as an apostle, but instead he appeals to them as brothers, as a fellow member of the family of God. And it is likely that this would lessen the harshness of the rebuke that is going to begin very, very quickly and continue for an incredibly long period of time. So as a part of God's family, which he himself is a member of, he's urging them to listen very carefully and very closely to what he is going to say. The exhortation comes to them by the name of Christ. The name of Christ would communicate that this urging, this imploring, is consistent with the character and the will of Christ. So Paul is speaking to them as a brother, but his words come with his authority as an apostle, and what he is telling them is that these words are consistent with the character and the will and the words of Christ. Now, if you go back to the Gospel of John in our study... And most specifically, the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed on the night that he was betrayed, we would be reminded of these words from John chapter 17. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. The character of Christ, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The word here is consistent with the character that exists within the person of Christ, within the, within the tri- Head of the Trinity, there is this unity that exists. It goes on to say, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So this call to unity comes in the name of Christ, which is consistent with his character and his will and his word. It is exactly what Jesus prayed would be the reality and the experience of the disciples. And it is exactly what the church experienced immediately following the days of Pentecost. We would read in Acts 2, 46 and 47, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And the words that Jesus prayed now come true as we read verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to the number day by day those who were being saved. So when the disciples experienced the kind of unity that Jesus prayed they would experience, it validates who He is, it authenticates what He has said, and it demonstrates to the watching world that what they have in themselves is consistent with the God that they are teaching you about, that they are living out before you, and it becomes an appealing factor in a looking world As they evaluate and examine these who profess to know the one true God. What does it say to the world when the church of Christ, whether it be universal or whether it be local, can't get along? Is not unified? Doesn't love each other? Doesn't have the same values and commitments? What does it say to a watching world well you 're just as mixed up and, and divided as I am in my life and in my world. Why would I want to add that into my experience? So the church in Corinth is not acting consistently with christ 's character, his will, or his word so paul 's urgent request to them is going to be couched in two positives. And in one negative. The first one that we're going to see here is unity in speech. And here is the first positive. Verse 10 says, that you all agree. Now that word agree in the Greek is often translated speak. And so what it would actually transliterate as is you all say the same thing. Now why is this important? Well, if you remember in the introduction, Paul has identified the prized gifts of speech and knowledge, and by virtue of what we say, we demonstrate our knowledge, and Paul is calling upon them to all say the same thing, to be united in your knowledge, to be united in the words that you speak. So Paul is using the gifts of speech and knowledge as examples of Christ's work in them. And these highly visible, highly prized gifts are now the source of the greatest issue, the greatest division that they have. And this is where Paul begins to address this important theme in the life of the church in Corinth. Now, what isn't clear to us Really anywhere in this letter to the church at Corinth is great detail about what this lack of unity is. We can put some pieces together and we can draw some, some conclusions based upon what the book says as a whole. But Paul doesn't come out and enumerate all of the different things that are examples of how they are not speaking the same thing. They could have been doctrinal. They could have related to the gospel message. They could have been related to Christian living. Could have been all of these things, but it isn't specifically spelled out for us. So one of the things that we have to remember is that there's very little that is more confusing to new Christians or to unbelievers who are considering the claims of Christ than to hear supposedly mature and informed Christians tell conflicting things about the gospel, about the Bible, or about Christian living. Think about it like this. Denominations are not a God-inspired way of grouping people together. Denominations are man-made realities of the difficulty that exists in coming together in unified doctrine and in unified practice. Now, what is the root cause of the differences that exist within denominations and within our understanding of what is reasonable, biblical Christian living? Well, it is sin. It is selfishness. It is man's stubbornness to live a self-willed and a self-ruled life. Few things are more devastating to a church than a group of people Each having their own ideas and their own interpretations about the faith or the congregation being divided amongst a group of factions or following a different group of leaders, each of which might have their own views. So for a church to be spiritually healthy, to be harmonious and to be effective in its ministries, there must be doctrinal unity and agreement on Christian living. The teaching of the church should not be presented as a smorgasbord where you have the ability to pick and choose what you like and whom you're going to follow and what you agree with, each of them having their own distinctions and their own separate group of leaders. This appears to be the case in Corinth as we're going to look at in a little bit more detail in just a few moments. So we see that there is this Call to unity in speech that you all say the same thing. Secondly, we see Paul say, urging them that there would be no divisions. Now, this is a negative portrayal in this call to unity. Verse 10 says, and that there be no divisions among you. Now, the word used here is important. The Greek word that is used for divisions is schismata, which is the word that we derive our word schism from. So when you understand what biblical schism means, it means to rip or to tear or to separate. This isn't just a disagreement or a difference of opinion. This indicates a much more serious problem. A problem where a resolution isn't easily to be found within the sinful, selfish hearts of man. So this is why there is this call to unity, because the results of this division is going to continue to reap devastating results within the life of the church in Corinth. So if people aren't speaking the same things about doctrine, about the gospel, about Christian living. It will undoubtedly create serious issues within the church. Imagine if you can that there are a variety of groups within the church. One group says, well, you know, adultery is really not that big of a deal. God understands. And after all, there's a bunch of examples of people in the Old Testament who had wives and concubines, so it's really not that big of a deal. There must have been some kind of a misunderstanding. What if you had another group that said, well, you know, I know Jesus died on the cross, and He is the one and only sacrifice, but surely Jesus can't be the only way because not everybody's heard the name of Jesus. So it would be unfair of God to sentence any to eternity in hell apart from Him because they hadn't heard the name Jesus. I wonder if you had another group of people that said, well, you know, this homosexual thing, didn't God make us the way we are? Aren't we created in the image of God? And after all, doesn't God understand that we just need to love everybody? We need to love and be loved, and so God has wired us to be a certain way. So imagine, if you will, just those three examples within the life of any singular community of believers, and I would imagine that it would be heated at best. You might actually see fistfights out in the parking lot as people are debating the merits of Jesus being the only way. The impact of people not speaking the same thing would be disastrous Within the church. So Paul, Paul is calling upon them for this urgency to speak the same thing, that there would be no divisions. And thirdly, to be united. This is the second positive urging for there to be unity within the church. Verse 10 concludes with, But that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now that word complete actually means united. And in the Greek, it means to put back together. That term was often used for mending torn nets, or torn garments, or broken utensils, or dislocated joints. It is to put back together that which has been torn or has been separated. So to be of the same mind and judgment means to be in agreement internally in our thoughts and externally in our actions. It is to put together, to fix, that which has been broken... In your doctrine, in your practice, in your Christian living, whatever is the source of the division... Expressed in speech and knowledge within the church of Corinth, this has to be fixed. It has to be broken. Now, again, it isn't all made crystal clear when every individual individual element of what is broken is. But there is this call to fix that which has been torn and separated. If this is not corrected, the church could expect an increase in the severity of their problems. When there isn't unity in mind and judgment, separation is inevitable. In the church, we call it a split. In a marriage, we call it divorce. In the world, we call it cultural divide. Even within the church, where there is a general sense of agreement there still stands the potential for there to be differences within us that create this idea that this will never be resolved, and therefore we must separate. I expect you to always, and you don't do that, therefore I'm going to go. I expect that you would never, and therefore I am going to go. I expect that we are going to do or we're not going to do, therefore I am going to go. Now, I would never advocate getting along to get along over doctrinal issues. There is very likely a time in the church where differences over doctrine or the gospel or what is biblical Christian living forces a separation. But if it is truly my conviction that these are differences that we just can't resolve, then we need to separate. If it's steeped in sin and rebellion, then we must seek restoration for the health and the well-being of the body. Now, that's a fine line for us to be able to navigate through. And we're not always aware of our sin and our rebellion and how that might contribute to the differences or the disagreements that we might experience. But I don't think that Paul is dealing with trivial, mundane things. Paul is dealing with a big deal. He's he's down with big issues, and that's why he's urging them to be of the same opinion, of the same external action in these areas that are wreaking havoc within the life of the church. So there's this call to unity. Secondly, we see the conflict. Now, this is where Paul begins to get a little specific about what he is dealing with. Verse 11 For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. So Paul has come to learn of the church's problems from Chloe's people. Now, nobody knows with any certainty who Chloe is. There's a lot of conclusions that are drawn about Chloe. And it's inferred from what is understood by the culture, by the customs, by the day and age that they were in. So here are some of the assumptions that are made based upon scholarly evidence and the investigation into the culture and the custom of the day. It is assumed that Chloe is probably not a part of the church in Corinth, but had somehow come to learn of the problems in Corinth and has reported it to Paul. It is assumed that Paul somehow knows Chloe and or Chloe's people, and there's some kind of relationship, some kind of interaction between the two. It is assumed that Chloe is likely a very wealthy widow because she is mentioned and not the husband, which would be typical of the custom and of the culture. So Paul was in Ephesus when he wrote the letter to the church at Corinth, And many believe that it's probable probable that Chloe lived in Ephesus and through her business dealings had people in Corinth and through those business dealings had communicated back to Paul through Chloe about what was taking place in the city of Corinth, potentially knowing of Paul's involvement in the city of Corinth some years earlier. All speculation, no way to know for certain, but it's a way of trying to weave together who this Chloe person is and why they would have reported this to Paul and why they didn't deal with it directly themselves. So if Chloe was not a part of the church and knew of Paul's partnering with the church in Corinth and had friends of hers that knew of this, it makes sense that this is how this all came together. Now, there's a little bit of a hint way, way back in First Corinthians 16, It says here that the church in Corinth had sent representatives to Paul. And these are mentioned. I didn't include the verses. Stephanus is one of these. I can't remember who the others are. But Chloe is not mentioned. So if Chloe was a representative of the church, it is likely that she would have been included in this representation mentioned all the way back In chapter 16. So if she was in the church, she would have been listed with that group. She's not in the church. It's assumed that she's not a part of that church, but she's learned of it, and she has told Paul about what she has heard, and so Paul is now dealing with this problems. And most certainly, the group who are representing the church in Corinth has come back and told Paul more about what is going on. So we can't know with certainty who Chloe is. It's probable that she's not a part of the church, but she has first hand knowledge about what is going on. So Paul begins to identify the problem in the church and he lists specifically quarreling. Now we know what quarreling is, right? Quarreling or disagreements or arguments and these can take place with varying degrees of intensity, right? Maybe you grew up in a home where mom and dad were really going at it pretty loudly and it was apparent that there was something going on that was pretty big and they might say to you, well, we're just having a little disagreement. Well that doesn't sound like that at all. Sounds like you're about ready to, you know, put the gloves on and go at it. So this quarreling biblically means strife. It's intense. It's a big deal. It's not just a disagreement over how the dinner was cooked or the way the clothes were folded, or what the guy spent for his hobby. This is a big deal. They are actually in, a, in a, an emotional state of strife over what is going on. So the quarreling reflects something that is more than just a casual disagreement. And Paul begins to address one of the sources of quarreling, and that is over the human loyalties. The human loyalties are mentioned here in verse 12. Now, I mean this, that each one of you, and Paul doesn't mean every single person, but he means groups within the church, Each one of you is saying, I am a Paul and I a Apollos and I of Cephas and I of Christ. So we have to remember, Paul ministered in Corinth for about one and a half years and was instrumental in the conversion of many of these people, of the founding of the church, of discipling them in the knowledge of Christ. When Paul left... Apollos, according to Acts, I believe, chapter 18, was appointed as his successor. So Apollos was the second pastor of the church in Corinth. Cephas is obviously Peter, who had some kind of travel through Corinth and likely led many of those people to Christ. And so each of these people are identifying with some individual human as my leader, what they say is, I follow Paul. I believe what Paul says. I believe what Paul teaches. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I, I, Cephas. So there's varying groups of loyalty based upon these previous influential people in the church. And so the congregational groups were choosing for themselves Who is their favorite former pastor or minister or leader? And they were going to be loyal to them. So we could say, well, if Pastor Greg didn't teach that, I don't think I can believe that. Well, if Pastor Dennis didn't say that, then I don't think I can follow that. If Paul or if Ken or if Tony or if any of the elders didn't advocate that, I'm not sure that I can follow that. So there is this human tendency... For us to have a deep affection for the people who were seriously influential in their spiritual journey. I still remember the man who baptized me. He didn't didn't lead me to Christ, but he baptized me. I have a fond affection for Pastor Phil. I still remember... Being in the baptistry and him asking me, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And do you commit to live for him? And I said, yes, now and forever. And he looked at me and his eyes began to water. I've never forgotten that. I always have a fond affection for Pastor Phil. I remember Mike, who was instrumental in my discipling. I remember Joe, who was instrumental in my discipling. I have a fond affection for these individuals who were influential in my life. But you and I can't circle a wagon around a person to the ignorance of the totality of what is taught in the Bible. We can't do that. And it's our natural tendency to do that. So, we know that there is this varying group of allegiance that has been formed. One to Paul, one to Apollos, and one to Peter. We'll get to Christ in just a moment. And here's how we know this to be true. First of all, Paul wasn't there. Paul was only there for a year and a half. Paul was well on his way into other missionary journeys at this time. He was not there. Peter was based in Jerusalem. Peter very likely traveled to some of these different areas to see what was going on in the church and undoubtedly preached and taught and led people to Christ. Apollos, who was Paul's successor as a pastor, is referenced very favorably in several instances in the book in this letter that Paul has written, he never says anything negative about Apollos. And so Apollos wasn't a part of the problem, just as Peter wasn't and Paul wasn't. And here's what Paul actually says about Apollos in 1 Corinthians me, but But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has the opportunity. Now imagine this for a moment. If Apollos was guilty of stirring up a group of loyal followers and creating division within the church, would Paul recommend Apollos to the church of Corinth? Absolutely not. He would say, stay away from Apollos. Avoid him. Don't listen to what he has to say he doesn't have the heart of Christ with him. Paul would have said something that would tip their hat to the fact that Apollos was a part of the problem and not an innocent bystander. So these men that are listed are not stirring up this division within the church. It is the groups of people who find an affinity for that individual. Now, the reference here to those that say, I am of Christ it is assumed that there were some within the congregation who claimed to have a special knowledge of or a special experience with Christ to the extent that they were not benefited by any human teacher. Well, you claim Paul, I, you claim Apollos, and you claim Cephas. We are of Christ. We don't need you clowns. Jesus speaks to us directly. We follow Christ and Christ alone. By the way, there are groups still like that today. We don't listen to the words of a teacher. We sit quietly, we pray, and we read, and Christ speaks to us. Christ reveals to us, and that's what we follow. What's the problem with that? There's no standard, right? There's no objective standard for anything that Christ would say apart from what is in his word. And teachers are supposed to expand upon, clarify, explain what Christ's words actually mean. So we need humans to help us because God has gifted some with the gift of knowledge and the gift of speech to help us understand more about who God is and what Christ has done. So there are these people within the church who prize wisdom and knowledge as the greatest greatest gifts of all, which was common in Greek culture. And so they could very easily say, Christ speaks to me directly. I don't need you guys to help me understand this, because there's this special wisdom and knowledge that God has given to me. So loyalties to these men have created serious divisions, so much so that the church is being torn apart, And Paul is calling upon them to put it back together. Here's now number three, and we see the confrontation. Verse 13. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul was so incensed by what he had heard that he begins to ask them these ridiculously absurd questions. And what he really wants to identify is this central issue where is the oneness in Christ? And so we ask the question Has Christ been divided? Of course not. Did Jesus come back and start to teach things that are contradictory to or different from what he taught when he was on the earth? Absolutely not. Did Christ advocate? distinctions within the body of Christ? Absolutely not. He prayed for unity within the body, just as he and the Father are one. Did Paul die on the cross for our sins? Absolutely not. Paul was not the Savior. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. You were baptized in the name of Christ, but probably by different people. And I believe that this is a bit of a hint as to why there are these varying allegiances within the church at Corinth. And it is the person who has led me to the Lord and the person that has baptized me in the name of the Lord. So again, there's nothing wrong with having a deep affection for the person that led you to Christ or baptized you or was instrumental and your spiritual spiritual development, this is very, very normal, but it should never create division within the church. Imagine if we said, well, I was baptized by Peter, I don't or by uh, Greg. I don't recognize your baptism because Greg didn't baptize you. Well, I was baptized by Ken. I don't recognize your baptism because Ken didn't baptize you. That's the kind of issues that are being surfaced here. So Paul goes on to say here in verse 14 and 15, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, according to the book of Acts, Crispus was the leader of the Jewish synagogue when Paul arrived in Corinth years before. Crispus was led to the Lord and Paul baptized Crispus because there were no other leaders who could perform baptism. So, Paul baptized Crispus, and then he goes on to say that he baptized Gaius. Now, Paul wrote the letter to the church in Corinth while he was in Rome. And while he was in Corinth, visiting and discipling and creating this church group, Gaius was his host. And so he led Gaius to the Lord and also baptized Gaius when he was there in that one and a half year period. Now, had Paul baptized more people while in Corinth, the group that would claim allegiance to Paul would have been much larger than it already was, and that would have infuriated Paul even more than that. So, as Paul is thinking about his baptizing Crispus and his baptizing Gaius, it's possible that his memory is stirred, or perhaps someone who is dictating his words, Stephanus, since he is a representative sent to Paul, And with Paul, perhaps he's the one writing down what Paul has said. Perhaps Stephanus says, oh yeah, you baptized me in my household. And so there is this reminder to Paul, either through his memory or through someone who is with him. And so Paul writes in verse 16, Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Now, when I read this, I think about this and I go, hmm, that's interesting, right? Isn't that interesting? Paul says, I didn't baptize anybody, but I baptized Gaius in Christmas. Oh, no, yeah, I baptized Stephanus and his household. I don't know if I baptized anybody else, right? Is that interesting to you? Maybe it's just me. Let me explain to you why it's interesting. This letter to the church at Corinth is the inspired word of God, right? So what does that mean about God's inspired word if Paul can't remember who he baptized, and who he didn't baptize. This is why we need scholars and theologians and people a lot smarter than us to help us understand why this is true. So here's what John MacArthur writes in this regard. He says, this comment gives an interesting insight into the inspiration of Scripture. As an apostle writing the Word of God, Paul made no errors, but he was not omniscient. God protected his apostles from error in order to protect his word from error that Paul did not know everything about God or even about himself and was careful never to make such a claim. He knew that God revealed things he had no way of knowing on his own. What he could not know on his own, he was, excuse me, Let me rephrase that. What he could know on his own, he was prone to forget he was one of us. Does that make sense? So, what MacArthur is saying is that the things that Paul writes that relate to God's Word, who Christ is, what God wants, these doctrinal matters God protects his apostles from making mistakes. But when it comes down to Paul's individual life and the details and the particulars of his own ministry, Paul was prone to forget some of those things. But in no way, in shape or form, does it discredit the inspiration of God's holy word. I think it's a wonderful way of understanding how the inspiration of God's word And the humanness of the author are merged in such a way that it doesn't take away from the infallibility or the inerrancy of God's word. Paul's simply writing about this central theme over unity, and he's going to get into this this explanation more when he starts talking about the cross of Christ, But he couldn't remember specifically who it was he baptized. Who he baptized was not a part of God's eternal word. It was a part of Paul's individual experience that he couldn't clearly recollect at the moment he was writing this letter. So, he was prone to forget just as we are. He was one of us in that regard. It doesn't diminish the inspiration of God's word through the apostles recorded for us because God would always protect his word. So, where is the oneness in Christ? Paul has asked these ridiculous questions about was Christ divided? Did Paul, was I crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name, Paul? So, where is the oneness of Christ? The oneness of Christ is in the cross of Christ. Verse 17 For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Now, Paul is not negating or minimizing the importance of baptism, but what he is instead doing is emphasizing his call as an apostle, and that is to preach the gospel. The oneness of Christ is not being experienced in Corinth, and this lack of oneness is contradictory to the gospel message that Paul has divided, excuse me, devoted his life to teaching and sharing. The gospel message is found in the cross of Christ. Now verse 17 is a segue into what Paul is going to address in great detail in our next section of Scripture. So it brings an end to, and it be, it's, a, it's a beginning of another section of Scripture. So here's what Paul says here. He uses the word cleverness. Where'd it go? Uh, where'd they go? They're not there. Gosh, I'm so sorry. Paul uses the word cleverness. It's in your outline. Cleverness is from the root word wisdom. So Paul says, I did not preach the gospel in clever speech, and the word there is logos, so he's saying in context to everything that is being said, especially as we look at verses 18 and following, I didn't preach the gospel according to worldly wisdom with skillful rhetoric, which is prized skills in the Greek culture and within the city of Corinth, Paul states very clearly he didn't preach the message of the gospel in that fashion. I didn't preach the gospel according to human wisdom, and I didn't try to convince you with very clever sounding words or philosophy. It wasn't like a man who fishes with a lure in order to catch a fish. Paul says, I, barely, I, I very simply preached you the gospel message if I were to preach the gospel and it was filled with worldly wisdom or with skillful rhetoric it would make the cross of Christ absolutely meaningless the message of the cross doesn't rest in human wisdom neither is the message of the cross steeped in human philosophy or so there would be no power in the cross and here's what was here's what paul will begin with as we look at the next section verse 18 for the word of cross Excuse me, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so it begins the contrast of what the city of Corinth prized in knowledge and in skillful speech. Paul says, I didn't preach the gospel of, of, of Christ that way. If I were to do that, it would make the cross meaningless. And so this is what Paul is going to begin to devote his time and attention to as we go through. So again, this is a segue for the next section, and it's our stopping point for today. So as we think about the unity that Jesus prayed for, that we would be of the same mind and of the same judgment, have the same opinion about who he is, about what he's done, about how we are to live our lives, we would live that out externally Where we aren't doing so, the Word of God calls us to unity. It urges us to see how God has woven us together. As Ken mentioned earlier, it instructs us. It protects us from the division that is inevitably going to come as a result of the sinful, selfish hearts of man. And it shows us where unity really is found. It's found not in a human agent of God, But in the redeeming cross of Christ, and that becomes our unifying factor, it becomes what holds us together. It's what pushes us forward. It's what determines how faithfully we will fulfill God's call on our life. It's all centered in the cross of Christ. And this is what we'll begin to look at in the days ahead. Father, thank you for This great blessing that you've given to us, I pray that we would experience oneness as it exists within the Trinity. Not just in a fake application, but in the true depth of our heart. An unwavering love for the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. A commitment to live for you according to your word as clearly as we can understand it. A faithfulness to serve you because of the great gift of salvation you've entrusted to us. Father, I pray that where there is division amongst us, whether it be serious or insignificant, that we would repent of that. That we would seek guidance from your word. That we would pursue restoration. And that in no way would we ever do anything that would diminish or distract from the work that you desire to do in and through your church. Father, thank you that we are unified in Christ, not just during our time on earth, but for all of eternity. We will be joined with you, to you, and with one another forever and forever. We give you thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's sing. Let's